Welcome to Happy Hour with Pastor Dale. Um, it's good to see my friends who are here, and um, I want to welcome those of you who are watching online or will be watching in the coming days um, or weeks. The, the, uh, the topic today is one of those tough issues. Um, Happy Hour with Pastor Dale is about tackling tough topics with uplifting love and grace, and today we're going to talk about something that um, is pretty heavy. Um, before we do, I just want to say that um, we do this about once a month. I'll kind of let you know at the end what we're going to do um, in July. Uh, but uh, mark it on your calendar. Um, every uh, first Tuesday of the month at 5.30 p.m. we will have um, a program here. Uh, but today we are going to uh, talk about um, medications that we take for depression and anxiety. And uh, I have invited um, somebody who I have known for many years, um, even though she looks like she's still like just out of college. Um, Amy Wormeyer is um, a doctor of uh, pharmac pharmacy yeah. um, and the uh, chair of the Department of Pharmacy at NDSU. And uh, she's already come and spoken at Lighthouse Church at Celebrate Recovery one night. And I invited her uh, to be here today to share with us. And so uh, we're so excited to have you here and to welcome you. And um, we're going to start by just like meeting you. So can you tell us what we, what we should know about Amy? Sure. So I am a wife and a mom. I have three sons. They're teenagers. So life with three teenage sons is enormous grocery bills and, you know, <laughs> running all over the place to activities. My husband's a high school teacher and coach of three sports, so I spend a lot of time on my butt in the bleachers mm -hmm. at various activities. And we've lived in Fargo for 22 years huh. this spring, and um, I work a lot and um, I'm passionate about the work that I do. I don't know if you want me to go into talking about that right away. Or? Um, well, we'll we'll get there. Okay. So um, just to kind of let you know, especially our Lighthouse family, um, you know, Amy um, is a follower of Jesus. Um, Amy belongs to uh, the church that I used to pastor. And um, we have kind of stayed in contact and crossed paths in various places. So it's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank and, you. And uh, I'm really excited to hear from her. We met a couple weeks ago and... Uh, there's so much information that she's going to share. So um, we, we decided in our conversation to narrow the scope of meds. Uh, to, you know, when we started talking, we were talking about mental health meds. Well, we decided pretty quickly that we were going to need to narrow that down. And so we're really going to focus um, on depression, anxiety meds, and that in itself is a pretty big gamut, if I remember correctly. Yes. So tell us what we're talking about, um, what kind of meds are we talking about, and then we'll get into how they work. Okay. So we're going to talk about antidepressants, which are the first-line treatments for depression as well as anxiety. And we'll talk about how they work and their side effects and the pros and cons of them and a little bit about how they're different from one another, because even though we call them antidepressants. There is a very long list of antidepressants and they kind of come in different categories. And that means they have different ways that they work and different benefits and risks associated with them as well. And then we'll also talk about the benzodiazepines, which are not antidepressants, but they are used to treat anxiety. And sometimes um, in the early stages of depression, they might be used also. 
um, but they have a lot of differences from antidepressants, so we'll kind of differentiate those and even kind of differences in the recommended length of treatment and what you can expect from them when you take them. Okay, so um, do you have some meds that you want to kind of show us? Sure, um, if you want to so advance to the next screen, I think it starts <clears throat> off the list okay. of antidepressants. So we're going to talk about SSRI antidepressants, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is a very long mouthful, um, but that's the list of those medications. And we're going to talk about how they work, but we'll go through the list of the possible antidepressants first. So the next slide would have another category of antidepressants. Some of you may recognize some of these names as well. This is the SNRI. We should have had a contest to like pick <laughs> the one you're on out, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's a little bit like trivia to be yeah, able to name yeah. the two names of your <laughs> antidepressants. Um, so the name of this category is serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So you might notice that some of the words in this category's name are the same words as we saw in the previous category's name, but there are differences. You see the word norepinephrine, really long name, um, but that differentiates this class of antidepressants from the one we saw on the previous screen. And then the next screen has what we call the other antidepressants. This is like a loving name for the redheaded stepchildren of the antidepressant <laughs> categories because these ones don't fit in with any of the others and they're just sort of lumped in their own basket. But they're actually more different from each other than they are any of the antidepressants we saw on the previous screen. And they're different from the ones that we saw on the previous screen as well. So this is just kind of a gobbledygook mix of a bunch of different medications that aren't very similar to each other but are still called antidepressants. Okay, Amy. And I think there's one more Go slide. Ahead. Oh, there's one more slide. Holy um, cow. These are the, the oldest group of antidepressants that are still in use these days, but they aren't used very often, so we don't need to spend much time on them. But they're called the tricyclic antidepressants. Okay. I put them on here because sometimes they're used for other things like chronic pain and migraine prevention. But, and so sometimes people don't even realize they are antidepressants, and that is the case. They are. So... So, um, we're going to ask you to make us um, a little smarter now. Um, so, I, I'm going to ask Amy if she can describe, um, you know, how, what's going on in our brain when we're depressed or have anxiety, and what do these um, medicines do? Sure. So hang with us. This is really <laughs> interesting. Okay? It's a long explanation, too. And the next picture hopefully will help. So this is a picture of two nerve cells in someone's brain that are talking to each other. Our nerve cells in our brains are constantly talking to each other, sending all kinds of messages across this gap in between the two um, nerve cells. So that's called the synaptic space on the picture. And whenever our brains are trying to send a message, the message starts on the left-hand side of the picture in what we call the presynaptic nerve. And it has to get across to the postsynaptic nerve, the other side, across a gap. And if it doesn't get there, it dies. So then it's just a defunct message and it doesn't carry the information to the brain the way the brain would need it to. So when we're um, trying to maintain a state of being not depressed or being not anxious, our brain is trying to send a lot of messages that we call mood maintenance messages. So they're, they're not like, oh my gosh, everything is great, I'm floating through the clouds and life could, could never be bad. Mm. But they're also not messages that have information about just, there's no hope for me, life is awful, I can't imagine a good time ever again in my life. So mood maintenance messages are just like, everything is fine, everything's hunky-dory, I'm feeling normal and fine. 
And our brain is trying to send those messages all the time. And it uses the chemical called serotonin. So the electrical signal is actually how um, nerves send messages to each other. The electrical signal travels down the presynaptic nerve, the left-hand side, and it gets to the end of the nerve, and you see those, those um, like circles with other circles inside of them. Those are storage bubbles, like storage um, containers, basically, that contain um, different kinds of brain chemicals. And when a mood maintenance message gets to the end of that nerve, it's going to activate some of those storage containers and cause the release of those brain chemicals out into the synaptic space. So those dots that are in the space now, those now are carrying the signal, the brain message. And if they don't make it to the receptors on the, the right-hand side of the page, um, which you can think of as like docks and that synaptic space being kind of like the, a river. And the river um, it has those, those chemical pieces floating in them and they need to get to the dock or else the message will just die out. Um, and so if our brain is trying to send a mood maintenance message, it's going to cause serotonin storage containers to become activated. They'll come to the end of the nerve and dump out their contents into the synapse. And we need those serotonin molecules to get to their receptor site in order for the mood maintenance message to continue on. So let's, let's whew, all right. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> so, um, so you're saying that our brain just naturally does this? Yes, so, like literally a million times a second, approximately. This is happening, rapid speed, so all the time. So there's part of our brain that sends this serotonin, this message that you're doing pretty well today and um, they are received, and that gives us a, a feeling of well-being? Basically, yes. Okay. Yep. And it's also anxiety-inhibiting, that feeling. So not only does it make you feel like you're not depressed, but it also makes it so that this system can't be sending anxiety messages. Huh. Interesting. Um, how in the heck did God figure this out when he created us? I don't know, but I, every time I ever have learned about this or think about it or even look at pictures like this, I'm like, how could someone not believe in a divine creator because this mm. is a complicated, well-balanced system and has so many factors that could influence it. It's extremely complex, yeah. So I suspect that what you're going to tell us is that when somebody is depressed, um, they're not hitting the dock. Essentially, that is the case. We don't know why that happens or exactly um, whether that's a cause of depression or, and anxiety or not. Probably it's not. It's probably, a, we call it an upstream effect. So before you get to this picture in the brain, there's probably something that happened previously, like several nerve connections upstream that caused a problem in our serotonin messaging and the serotonin molecules not getting to their docks appropriately. Okay. Sometimes it might be that there's not enough serotonin in the storage containers. Sometimes it might be that the receptors, there just aren't very many of them, and so therefore there aren't any docks to receive the serotonin when it gets there. And we also know that there can be docks, basically, that don't work. Even when the serotonin gets to them, they don't carry out what they need to to get the message going on that So the side. problem could be in a lot of different places. Yes. yes. So how do you figure out how to help somebody? Well, unfortunately, that's not a very sophisticated hmm. <laughs> system at this point. 
We know that we can use medication to increase the amount of serotonin in someone's brain. So we can actually make it so that you have more dots in your storage containers huh. and more of those dots then get out into the synaptic space in that, that um, gap between the nerves. Um, but we don't know, we can't tell by looking at someone when they present with symptoms of depression, we can't tell if it's that their serotonin system isn't functioning or a different brain chemical system or none of the above. Um, and we can't tell which medication is going to work for them then based on their symptomatology because we don't always know exactly what's happening in their brain that's making them feel that way. We have good guesses and I would say they're educated guesses and a lot of um, possibilities to try and that helps us rule out certain um, things that might be going wrong, but we can't, we don't have a way to zero in right now on what is the problem exactly. So this probably is a good time then to talk about the, the meds and how they then work sure. and yep. what they do. Is that yep. good yep. timing? Okay. So I think we'll kind of keep it to talking about the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors to start okay. with, because they're, right. the, I think the they're the most commonly used antidepressants for one thing, and they're the easiest to explain. So what are the most common meds so that people know if they're on this? Sure. So we're talking about things like Celexa, uh, Lexapro, Zoloft, Prozac, Paxil. They okay. all have two names, too. We didn't talk about this earlier, yeah. but every medication has a brand name. Of course it is. That's easier to say. Uh -huh. And a generic name that's often harder to say. Um, and I always tell people that if you can at least recognize both names of your medication, that's pretty helpful because most of these medications are available by generic now, meaning that the, the parent company that developed these medications, they had a patent on it for a while. They called it only by its brand name. Then once their patent expires, a lot of other companies can make the same product, but they can't call it by the fancy brand name or the easier to say brand name. They have to call it by the generic name. Okay. So when your doctor writes a prescription for Celexa, your pharmacist will likely fill it with citalopram, the generic version, and that's legal, that's intended for um, allowing you to get the medication at a lower cost usually. Gotcha. So how does that work? How, how do those meds work? Okay, so those medications are going to sit on um, a structure in the brain that's called a reuptake pump. Um, if we go back to the previous picture, we can show that if you don't mind, Beth. Huh. The, yeah. On the left-hand side, you can see um, it almost looks like an equal sign, and it's called, oh, what is the, the label for it? I can't even see it. Oh, transporter. Transporter is what the label okay. is. Right in the middle, kind yeah. of? Yep. Right okay. at the bottom there, yeah. Yep. Um, so the transporter acts like a vacuum, and it sucks up serotonin back into the side from which it came. So that means that it makes it so the serotonin can't get to its receptor. Hmm. And it seems that some of us might have those transporters that are too, the vacuums are too effective, they're too sucky, if you will, and they take the serotonin back into the place where it came from and then it can't do its job. So these antidepressants act like a sock in that vacuum and they block it. So the yeah. vacuum can't suck up serotonin nearly as well as it previously did and therefore more serotonin will sit out in that space longer more of it will get to the receptor and then more of it will, or that means that more of those mood maintaining and anxiety inhibiting messages will get through in the brain. So how long does it take to know if that is working sure. for somebody? Interestingly, the medications, they block that vacuum within 24 hours after you start taking the medication. Mm -hmm. But you t tend not to feel the effects and people don't tend to notice their depression getting much better for several weeks. 
And the reason is not because the medication is not doing anything. The amount of that serotonin in the brain goes up right away. 24 to 48 hours later, your brain has more serotonin in it. Um, but we know now that in order for these medications to really work effectively, um, our brains need to grow new nerve connections. So that would be kind of like an additional branch from another nerve coming into this same space and being able to receive some of that extra serotonin. New docks. New docks, right. Okay. Right. Um, coming from different directions than mm -hmm. they previously were. And that takes sometimes as long as 12 weeks. Mm. Um, it can happen as soon as two weeks, but the, the typical range would be like four to six weeks until you're going to feel a noticeable effect from one of these medications. So before we move on from how they work in the brain, is there anything else regarding the drugs um, that we might take for depression, anxiety, um, that you would want to share with sure. us? Well, I would want to share that the, the way these medications work, they're not able to permanently keep those new docs around. So when you're taking one of these medications, it causes your brain to grow these new nerves with more docs. But when the medication is stopped, oftentimes people's brains will sort of retract those um, new nerve branches that grew and remove those docs. And so um, it can mean that depression will not stay under control in the absence of a medication. That's not the case for every single person. It seems that some people's brains, once they grow those new nerve connections, they're able to maintain them. Um, but the majority of people, their brains are not. Now, that doesn't mean that you have a, like a life sentence that once you start an antidepressant, you have to take one forever. But we do know that the more times you've had depression or anxiety, the more evidence that is that you're likely to have it again and that your brain's not able to sustain those new nerve connections without the support of the medication. So you're perhaps better off staying right. on a medication. Um, so um, you said something surprising earlier, and that is that you start, um, you start treating anxiety with these same meds. Yes. And that's because the source of anxiety is the same, or it's just that it's able to treat it in the same way? Um, it's more that the source of prevention of anxiety is the same as the source for treating depression. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. The serotonin chemical is needed for preventing anxiety and treating depression. So usually when, um, when people um, talk about going on a med for depression or anxiety, um, there's some anxiety about, um, about side effects. Um, about kind of the unknown, whether or not, um, you know, they really need to be treated for it. How, how do people navigate that and what are some of the side effects? Sure. So I guess I think everybody navigates that in their own way. Some people like to know about what to expect from taking an antidepressant even before they start and want to have a conversation with their prescriber about, you know, what should I be watching out for? What are the pros and cons of the different options I might consider? Um, when and you say provider, are you talking physician or prescriber, or are you talking pharmacist? Either one. Okay. Um, I think it is helpful if this conversation happens before you ever leave the doctor's office with okay. a prescription, because right. sometimes you can change the direction of what medication you might be prescribed based on concerns you might have. One of the things we talk about here sometimes is you know, learning to advocate for yourself and you know to be able to ask, ask questions and it's okay to ask questions oh my gosh it's more than yeah. okay it's highly encouraged okay yep yep um 
And some people prefer not to know what their medication might bring about because they feel anxious just knowing that these things might happen. And I, some people feel every side effect once they read them. Right, yeah. right. So mm -hmm. I would really encourage people to kind of self-reflect about what it is that I want to know about this medication before I start it, what it is that I would rather just <clears throat> trial and error myself. Mm -hmm. And um, I would caution people about using Dr. Google to find out about all their medications as their sole source of information because people put a lot of crazy things on the internet that tend not to be true, so. Really? Yeah, I know, it's shocking. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so um, side effects, yeah. what, what, what might we deal with if we are on depression, anxiety meds? So I think of side effects kind of in three different windows of time. The first would be early onset side effects and those tend to happen within the first two weeks of being on an antidepressant and they don't usually last longer than that two week period. And those can be um, stomach upset, kind of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, any, any possibility um, associated with your stomach. Um, anxiety is an early onset side effect of an anxiety medication, believe it or not. It sounds totally backwards and it kind mm -hmm. of is, but um, it has to do with that increased amount of serotonin being present in the brain right away and our brain's kind of not really knowing what to do with mm -hmm. it yet. Okay. Um, and some people experience that as like, oh my gosh, this medication is making me worse. I, I've got to stop taking it. And I would never tell somebody like, You're, you cannot stop taking this. But honestly, if you can work your way through that and get to the part where the medication is going to help you, you probably are going to be better off. So we should, we should make sure that gets kind of stated one more time. So at first, there may be some anxiety that is created by the meds and that if you stay on it long enough, your brain will adjust. Right. Am and I hearing that correctly? Exactly right, yep. Okay. Sometimes people feel worse before they feel better, okay. which is unfortunate, but it really is very common to see. Okay. And on the flip side, some people experience that more as like an activation and almost an uplifted hmm. sensation. Like they feel like they have more energy and they're more activated and their brain's going a little bit better. Um, and then it goes away because it's an early onset side effect in those first two weeks. And they can also feel like, oh, this was working and now it quit. So gotcha. this is not the med for me. Well, that's just an artifact, a kind of blip in the radar of what the medication is ultimately going to do over the long term. Okay. So anything that happens in the first two weeks with an antidepressant, not a good indication of how it's going to go long term. Any other side effects we should know about that? Longer term side effects tend not to happen for the... So, you know, I, that, I said three different windows of time with side effects. The early onset ones we talked about, now the sort of time, or later onset ones, they tend to happen after being on the medication for two to three months. Hmm. And they can be things like weight gain, tends to be mild, but for some people, any amount of weight gain is not considered mild. So mm -hmm. that's a very individualized kind of, how do we deal with that? Um, insomnia is not uncommon, and that's very treatable. Um, but can be problematic and crop up later. And then sexual side effects are also really quite common with antidepressants, more common than we ever used to think. Hmm. And that can be things like reduction in libido, reduction in ability to experience climax are the most common things. Those are also very treatable. All of these later onset side effects are very treatable, but they're not going to go away on their own. Okay, the early so doctor, onset, doctor. Yep, the early onset side effects will likely go away on their own. These ones will not. Okay. So we need to either adjust a dose or add a medication to treat the side effect or switch to a different side effect or a different medication altogether. So you can sometimes try different meds and see if the side effects are different. You, but do you have to start all over then, don't you? Or? You do. Um, and it, 
It depends on which one we're switching to. Um, you may not have to start all over at the very earliest dose of the, the next medication, um, but we do have to kind of reset the clock in terms of how long we expect it will take for the new medication to start working. Yeah, okay. So um, you know that uh, I'm in long-term recovery, and um, I know that uh, our ministry deals with um, people in recovery a lot. One of the first things I learned um, in treatment about about um, depression meds um, is that if you're using mind-altering substances, they're likely not working. Right. Can you make a comment about that? Sure. So mind-altering substances actually work in this exact same picture that we've been talking about. They, they work in the nerve connections as well. And what they tend to do is cause your brain to dump out a whole bunch of brain chemical all at once. So all those storage containers they just get emptied out. And that space in between the nerves that's just gets flooded. That's why we felt so good. Right? That's, it's totally true. That's why it feels so good. <laughs> but it's so much that your brain can't handle it. Yeah. It can't use it all. The receptor aren't, there aren't enough receptors for that. And you can't regenerate the chemical back into the storage bubbles very quickly. And therefore, you're depleted of the resources your brain needs to help you use and send mood-maintaining mood and anxiety-inhibiting messages. So often that means your depression and anxiety get worse, especially when the effect of the substance wears off. Yeah. And the amount of chemical that gets dumped out into that space all at once actually can take the medication and like kick it off. They can kind of gang up on meds and move them off the site that they're attached to because they have a stronger affinity to that site. The, the um, brain chemicals do. And so, yeah, it's like a double whammy for your medication, making your condition worse and making the med not work. So I know alcohol is a depressant, and you've kind of described that that probably, um, you know, literally takes over um, those, those nerve um, communications. Um, what about stimulants that people might be on? How do they work? We're a little bit less clear about stimulants because there is some evidence that prescription stimulants can, be, because they release a smaller amount of chemical at one time, that perhaps they might be able to sort of augment the effect of an antidepressant rather than deplete the effect. Mm -hmm. But excessive use or really strong stimulants like methamphetamine, we know for sure, without a doubt, deplete the brain of its chemical stores and make it so that depression and anxiety get worse. So, Same with things like yeah. um, marijuana and heroin and o other opioids of abuse. We, we know that they all tend to deplete the system of its resources and, and make mood control worse. So you're going to say a word also about some of the um, meds that might later be used for anxiety. Yeah. Would this be a good time to talk sure. about that? Yeah, so I didn't bring a list of those, but I'll mm -hmm. kind of list them off. Um, the, the category of medications is called the benzodiazepines, and common medications in that, ca that class are things like lorazepam, which also goes by the name of um, Ativan. Thank you, I totally <laughs> lost it for a second. Um, Xanax, which also goes by the name of alprazolam. Clonopin, which also goes by the name of clonazepam and Valium, which also goes by the yep. name of diazepam. So those medications are very short-term um, medications for anxiety. And I kind of think about them as the breaks in your brain. So when you have anxiety, that means that signaling in your brain, fear-related signaling specifically, is going too fast. And we use the, our brains use the chemical called GABA whenever there's something happening too fast. And GABA is always the breaks in our brain. Um, but GABA will step on the brakes for all kinds of 
processes that are happening in your brain. So not only will um, using GABA, the chemical, slow down anxiety, it'll also slow down your breathing and your thinking and your coordination and your speech. So the chemical GABA is very broad. It's going to affect a lot of things. So the benzodiazepines, they affect GABA. That's their main job. They, slow, or they, they make GABA more effective in your brain. And so they're very broadly affecting your brain by slowing it down. And that feels, that's good in terms of getting anxiety under control, but over the long term it's really quite a bad thing because your brain's not able to function at its normal um, speed and um, conduct So you don't want to be on them a lot long term. Yes. And um, I've uh, discovered in my lighthouse ministry with others that they can also be abused. Yes, they can. So not only do those medications make GABA work better, but at the exact same time, they cause a little bit of release of the chemical dopamine in the brain. And dopamine is very powerful for showing our brain something that was pleasurable and important, and that we should sort of take a record of it. Yeah. And so um, when we get this little spurt of dopamine, our brains really perk up and notice it. And the more we get the GABA action, so stepping on the brakes in our brain, at the same time that dopamine is being released, our brain starts to associate those two things as the same, because they're happening at the same time. And so then your brain starts to learn that anxiety relief and pleasure are the same thing. And um, people will often tell me, well, I don't actually get a high or a buzz from my benzodiazepine. And I say, okay, but do you get this? <sighs> like this sensation of, oh. I, that feels good, I can breathe. Oh. Well, that's not anxiety relief. Anxiety relief is just not being anxious anymore. Uh, um, but this oh, sensation is the dopamine. That's helpful. That's pretty helpful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so it, when someone takes a, a benzodiazepine for a long time, it can be very hard for them to feel like they're not anxious if they don't get that oh, right. sensation. Okay. And that's where the dependence can come in. Gotcha. Okay. A um, lot of information. Everybody take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> a See, you can get that awe sensation without the benzodiazepine. <laughs> so um, here's uh, one of the harder questions. Um, in our um, Lighthouse family, uh, we have um, people who have been pretty much on every medication you had up on the screen. Every combination of medications and um, nothing helps. So why don't they work for some people? If I had the answer to that, I would have like some fancy lab in Maryland at the National Institute of Mental Health probably. Oh. But um, I think it's probably that there are many causes of depression. We don't know what they all are. And there are many brain changes that are happening in depression that we, we don't understand fully. And so we don't know how to intervene fully to to heal the brain, basically. Yeah. And we also know that when people have a lot of adverse experiences in their life, their brain connections form in, in maladaptive ways, unhealthy ways. And sometimes unforming those is very challenging, very time-consuming, involves working through a lot of the trauma that's happened mm. in those experiences in order to repair those connections that formed in ways they We're really pretty complex have. beings, aren't right. we? Um, so what, how long does somebody wait, you know, when they've started some medications or some changes in meds? How long do we wait before we go back and say, I'm not sure if these are working? And 
um, should we go back and say, I don't know that they're working? Yes, you should go back and say that you don't know that they're working because really we know that when we get people's symptoms fully under control, that their chances of having a relapse, having their symptoms come back you know, really significantly mm -hmm. is lower. Um, and if you see zero change after two weeks of a new medication or a new dose of medication, then you should report that Okay, so far, nothing. Quick. Yep, okay. Your doctor might say, we're still going to wait longer because mm -hmm. we know that for some people it takes four to six, maybe even eight to 12 weeks before we're going to see benefit. But if there's zero change at two weeks, then it's time to start talking about, you know, what okay. might we consider. That's helpful. That's very helpful. Um, and um, is it okay if you don't think your med is working to just stop it on your own? Well, I, I never say there's like, it's against, I never say there are exact rules. Um, but it's not the best decision, usually, to stop your medication all on your own because these medications have what we call discontinuation effects. Okay. Um, they can cause a whole cluster of symptoms when they're stopped cold turkey. Um, and some people call it withdrawal. Not yeah. to be confused with addiction-related withdrawal, but it, it can have some similarities. So can things, it be dangerous? It's not dangerous. It's just uncomfortable. Okay. Um, Flu-like symptoms, headaches kind of just feeling like you're run down or coming down with something. And then it's really quite common for people to have brain zaps. Maybe some of you have experienced them before, but they mm. feel like little zings in your brain that are short-term, they're not harmful, but they're kind of weird and uncomfortable. I associate those with age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that, if that's a known <laughs> thing or not. But <laughs> So um, what, about, um, what about the stigmas? What, what's your comment about the stigma? Um, there's not a lot of stigma about medications and things here, but I know in a lot of the world is, and there'll be people watching perhaps out across, you know, in other places, even in the country, you know. Can you just talk about the stigma of taking these meds yeah. and what that means culturally? Sure. Um, for some reason, a long time ago, mental illnesses got associated with moral behavior instead of organ dysfunction. And that's such a unfortunate thing and it's taking a long time to undo that that kind of view worldview um, but I like to think about it as depression and anxiety are an, an organ dysfunction a bodily organ dysfunction just like diabetes is a bodily organ dysfunction and we would never shame someone because they're taking insulin to treat their diabetes because their pancreas isn't working properly but for some reason we shame people or make them feel like there's something different if they're taking a medication to support dysfunction in their brain organ. It, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. They're all organs. They're all encapsulated inside our body. And conditions, d diseases of organs are diseases of organs, no matter what organ you're talking about. That's my take on it. Yeah. And we, I mean, there's a ton of biological evidence to support that as well. Yeah. And, and somewhere around one out of every five people in the United States are taking a mental health medication, which is more mm. common than diabetes, believe it or not. Yeah. So no reason we should treat it so any different. So 20%. Yeah. So well, close to 20%. Yep. Close to 20%. Um, so um, tell us just a couple of quick questions before we do question and answer. So we're going to have question and answer time. Um, what, if, what if I can't afford my meds? I wish I had a quick and easy answer for that too. But um, first of all, you need to have the conversation with your provider before you leave the office with your prescription that 
cost of medications is a concern for you because some of the medications that are available to treat depression are really quite inexpensive. Like mm. we're talking in the under $10 a month range. And some are, you know, 10 times that or more. Um, so if your provider knows that that's a concern, hopefully the two of you can reach a decision about which medication to use that takes that into account. Okay. Um, if you get to the pharmacy with your prescription and find out it's too expensive, it's a longer process to get the problem solved, unfortunately, because the pharmacist doesn't have the authority to change the prescription to something cheaper. Right. Um, they can sometimes help with connecting you with the manufacturer of a more expensive medication. They'll sometimes have support programs, or they can connect you with coupon programs that are sometimes available, but those are usually... Um, kind of short-term fixes for a bigger problem, I would so say. So have a conversation with the person prescribing them yep. right up front about your concerns about yes. cost. Yes. Um, there is also in North Dakota a drug donation program that a lot of people aren't aware of. Hmm. Even pharmacists around the state are often not aware of it. Um, so that's something you can ask that at the North Dakota Board of Pharmacy, there's a website that can connect a pharmacist to the drug donation program to see if there are any of your kind of medication available on a hmm. donation stockpile. It's good for us to know. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think you've already talked talked about you know tapering off meds um, or the reason why we don't just stop them cold turkey and um, you know just I think one of the best um, advices for for people um, who are watching who especially are on some of the meds is you know get some advice and talk, talk to your doctor before you stop your meds and uh, most of them you can taper off and have little effect is that correct right okay. yes and sometimes that taper needs to be over several weeks which can seem like a long drawn out process, but it's for a good reason to yeah. hopefully make you not have uncomfortable sensations associated with it. So before we do question and answer time, um, can you just say, if, tell us if there are some new developments in the world of meds for, or research for um, depression, anxiety? Yeah, there are actually a lot of new developments over the last five years or so. There have been new medications approved by the FDA that can actually make it so that people go from severe depression to zero depression within like 24 hours or less, hmm. um, which seems quite miraculous compared to the other treatment options we've had available forever. Um, they have challenges to their use though, these medications do. Um, including that like they're only available in a nasal spray formulation and also quite addictive and so or potentially addictive if used incorrectly and so um, they have to be kept in the care of a healthcare provider and ha the the person who's using them has to go into the clinic to receive them and it's like three times a week for eight weeks going into the clinic during the day so there are challenges to accessing them Another new one um, is only available by IV infusion, and it's a 60-hour IV infusion. Oh. And so people have to be admitted to the hospital to get this. Um, it, but it, it takes care of depression within those 60 hours, and usually people are back to their normal state of pre-depression. Are pre those going to become more widespread, and people will... There are clinical trials going on now, it, both in pill form, so oh. you know, like analogs of those medications that are available yep. in pill form, and that can be taken outside the care of a clinical setting um, that people can actually take home. Yeah, that's good news. Yeah, it's so amazing. I think there's yeah. a lot of hope on the horizon for hmm. treatment of depression. So um, before we do question and answers, let's just, uh, you know, just tell us, um, most of us probably wish you were our pharmacist. <laughs> um, so um, 
tell us what should our relationship be with the person who is filling our prescriptions? Yeah, I know it can sometimes seem like the environment of a pharmacy is more like a fast food restaurant than a care place of caring and um, clinical um, provision, I guess. Um, but really, pharmacists went to pharmacy school and got trained the way they did to take care of people and to help them. And so I would say avoid the temptation to, to treat your pharmacist like a healthcare or like a um, fast food worker and think of them more like your nurse or your doctor. They have you know, the, a similar amount of training and they, they usually want to help and they're happy to take time aside to answer questions for you, help explain things more. Um, if they give you a piece of paper when you ask a question, I would say a piece of paper with a bunch of information on it, I would say to follow up with more questions like, this is overwhelming. What should I really pay attention to on this sheet of, that has you know, 50 side effects listed? What, what should I really pay attention to? What's really likely to happen to me? Or what do I do about it if one of these things happens to me? Those are important questions to ask. And your, health, or your pharmacist has the knowledge and information to pass on to you. So I would say think of them as a resource and a partner in your care as much as you can. Hmm. All right. So we are going to take a few minutes for some questions and answers. And um, if you have a question that you would like to ask Amy, and if you're watching live stream, you can write a question in, and she will do her best to answer it. And if it's going to be a long answer, we'll wait till afterwards to answer it. But okay. we're going to start right away. Um, why don't you uh, stand up and maybe share your name, and uh, we'll get started. Hi, I'm Misty. Um, first, I have a comment. So. Uh I've learned that the pharmacist knows more than the doctor half the time, so um, that's good. But then I have a question. So the brain, why can't you look at the brain? You can look at the heart, you can look at the lungs, you can see what's wrong with it. There's, you know, and these things are just organs also. Why can't, I'm going to get emotional. Why can't you look at the brain and then say, okay, this is wrong and this is where I need to fix it? Or oh. even make a road for it, you know? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Misty. Um, I... I, again, I feel like I, if I had the answer to that, we wouldn't all be sitting here probably because we would have a lot more things solved. Um, part of it is that we can't see electrical signaling very well, and it often doesn't lead to changes in the shape of what the brain actually looks like compared with your heart. If your valves aren't working in your heart, they'll change shape, and that's easier to see. Um, but the electrical activity between nerve cells is much harder to see. And even when we can see it, there are techniques developed to see it, but it's very invasive and hard to do. And even when we can see it, sometimes we don't, it doesn't lead to any uncovering of what's problematic. So I, I think the simple answer is it's just so complex and um, just so dynamic. It's such a changeable organ that it's hard to pin down what the real issues are. So he must have his own mic. All right. So we have a question online. Yes. There's somebody asked a question on our Facebook stream. They said that they get sick to their stomach from taking pills. What's the best way to counteract that sickness? Eating before taking meds doesn't work for them. So how can they be more consistent with meds and avoid the nausea that's associated with it? Good question. Sometimes people have success by taking their medication that causes nausea right at bedtime so that they sleep through the worst of that nausea. A lot of times nausea is caused by the, like when the medication is at the highest uh, peak in your bloodstream and then as it starts to oh. taper out of your bloodstream, you might have less of that effect. So that's one thing that you could try. 
Um, sometimes people do better when they take an antacid or some Tums with their medication. Some medications kind of increase the amount of acid that your, brain, or your stomach has um, being secreted in order to process that medication. And so helping to reduce the amount of acid might help. And if neither of those are helpful, then I would say it's important to talk to your prescriber about what other options would be available to try to avoid that. Is there a flexibility to take meds, like at various times during the day? So if somebody said you should take one of these each morning, that doesn't necessarily hold true if it's upsetting your stomach? With most antidepressants, we usually tell people to start taking them in the morning. There are a few exceptions, especially Remeron. If anybody's taking Remeron, we usually say to take that at night because it causes a lot of sleepiness. Okay. But the rest of them, we usually tell people to take them in the morning, but it is A-OK -okay to switch to taking them at night. Um, it's not that you, you would not want to take it in the morning a few days, take it at night a few days, back to the morning, right. back to the night. Um, I'd say taking it the same way for at least a week's time is important to kind of see how your body's going to adjust to taking it at a different time of day. But it, it's usually not a problem to switch to taking it at night if you were previously taking it in the morning and that doesn't work very well for you. Should you try to take these meds within a certain window, same, all the time? It's optimal to try to take them about every 24 hours if okay. it's a once a day medication. That just helps your body and brain to have steady levels of the medications instead of any kind of peaks and troughs or big yo-yo effects. But if you forget to take it, let's say you're supposed to take it at 8 o'clock in the morning, that's when you usually do, and you forget one day, it's fine to take it whatever time you remember, unless it's already the time to take it the next day, yeah. you know, the next right. morning. Um, but if you, if you remember at 4 p.m., that's fine. You can go ahead and take it that, that day and then just pick up again with your normal schedule the next day. So that day. whole communication docking thing, it, it, is that working 24 hours a day when it you is. take a pill? It usually is a consistent thing, not a, like a high that you get for a little while. Right. Okay. Right. All right. We've got all sorts of hands up here. <laughs> so can you stand up and just share your name? Hi, my name is Marjorie. Can you show on the screen what reducing citalopram does when it how it dulls the emotion and then um, the reverse when you start reducing the amount that you're taking sure I you can't understand? show I, I think I understand what you're saying kind okay. of a um, long-term effect of feeling emotionally numb is that what you're saying? Like a side effect of the medication? Yeah. Um, I cannot show how that happens in the brain because we don't know. We don't know what it is that leads to that side effect. Um, we do know that somewhere around 30 to 40% of people experience that. Um, and it has probably something to do with the way your brain um, reacts to the extra amount of brain chemical there and the way it prunes out its docks and makes like substitutes out ones that weren't working and puts in ones that are working. But that's a theory only, and we haven't really nailed down exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, hands all over, Kirk. We're going to try to do this quick because we don't want to go all... <laughs> it's happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. My name's Laura. Hi. Um, so what Amy, right, yeah. was saying... Uh, in, in my perspective, my brain works like uh, you're going at uh, 110 miles an hour. 
you're feeling that rush, but yet you're as slow as a turtle kind of thing all at once. Do you think that maybe putting fruits, certain fruits in your diet would uh, help these? Um, so your body's not keeping up with your brain, is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's well, I would say a, a fruit and a healthy balanced diet certainly can't hurt. Um, except for maybe your pocketbook if that causes your grocery bill to go up. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that the chemicals in the brain are actually made out of protein. And so if your diet is too low in protein and you're malnourished in that way, that can actually make it so that your chemical systems aren't communicating appropriately the way that they're supposed to. Um, but that doesn't mean That's you should... interesting. It doesn't mean you should go on a high-protein diet and all of a sudden your life will be fixed. It just mm -hmm. means that a good balance of nutrients, including the vitamins you get from fruits and vegetables, the proteins you get from lean protein sources, are, are good you know, approach to use on a consistent basis whenever you can. But I wouldn't expect a miraculous change really with any diet change you might make, especially not in the short term. Yeah, that's a good question. So you just pick Kirk. We're going to go for a few more minutes. And then Amy will we'll stay afterwards uh, for a few minutes to answer questions too. Uh, I'm Paul. Um, you were talking about GABA being in the brain. That's an amino acid, right? Uh, it's a neurotransmitter. A neurotransmitter. Okay, yep. So that's not the same as the buy at the store GABA? Yes, you can buy. Yeah. yeah, good question. You can buy an over-the-counter supplement called GABA, but the interesting thing about brain chemicals is that the vast majority of them can't get from your stomach to your brain. There's no direct path, and the brain has a really protective coating around it called the blood-brain barrier, and it doesn't let very many things through, including brain chemicals. Because you don't really want all your brain chemicals leaking out of your brain either. And that's what would happen if they could get directly from your stomach to your brain. Um, so the over-the-counter kind that you can buy might be able to affect things in your body, but not really in your brain. Good question. The same is true with serotonin. You can buy over-the-counter serotonin too. Hmm. But it doesn't seem to get to the brain. I was wondering about mood stabilizers and how they affect your brain. <clears throat> Excuse me and also the combination with them with a depression medication. Okay, so mood stabilizers are a whole nother ball of wax. Um, they do often affect GABA, but in different ways than the benzodiazepines do. And um, we might need to save that whole conversation for another time because it's a kind it's, of in-depth difference okay. from antidepressants. But I will say that if you have bipolar disorder, then we usually recommend that you take a mood stabilizing medication um, and not just an antidepressant. Antidepressants alone in bipolar disorder can cause more harm than good. And so the combination is generally okay, but we wouldn't want you taking an antidepressant without a mood stabilizer as well. We, will, we do hope to have Amy back in a few months and talk about some of the other medications, and, and that's an excellent question. All right. Jasmine, and I was wondering, um, with teenagers, uh, if they get put on new medication like the first two weeks, is it normal for them to have like uncontrollable rage or uncontrollable sadness? I'm glad you asked that because we forgot to, we talked about it we in did, our yep, previous discussion, yep. but not today yet. Um, so we know that antidepressants, you know, that first two weeks I was talking about where you can sometimes feel worse than, than get better over time. Um, we know that that tends to be worse or more likely to happen for people who are under the age of 24. 
We don't know why. It's just, mm. it's just been shown over time that younger people are more susceptible to that. And that includes a warning about becoming suicidal when they weren't previously suicidal. The warning isn't specific about rage, but there is definitely irritability and anxiety that can happen in those first two weeks, and that's part of this whole kind of cluster that I was talking about. Um, oftentimes when that happens, we try to just support people through that first two weeks period if we can, because if we change to a different medication to try to avoid that effect, then we might just be starting back over at the beginning and going through it again for two weeks and then switching to something else and going through it again for two weeks. So we try, if we can, to get them through that window of time so that they can get to the part where the medication might be helpful. It's not always possible, especially if the support system isn't intact and the school's not going to be supportive or what have you, but that's generally what we try to do. Does that answer your question? Good question, okay. Jasmine. Mm -hmm. I should say also that we know that, sorry, once you get past that first two-week window, and actually it's extended out to four weeks for the research trials, that antidepressants are very protective against those things, irritability, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. So the take-home message is that people generally, when they have depression and anxiety, are safer being treated with an antidepressant than not, even though that first four weeks can be kind of hairy hmm. to get through. Yeah. Excellent. Um, there's this big CBD craze going on right now. Is there any scientific value as far as anxiety and depression? Great question. CBD. Um, we could have a whole hour on this too, We probably. will, yes. <laughs> um, the jury's still out, I would say. And um, there are a few things that we can pretty strongly conclude. One of them is that THC, so the, when, when someone uses marijuana, there are a few different components. THC and CBD are the primary components. Um, THC tends to be harmful for mood and anxiety. Um, the jury's still out about if it can be helpful for PTSD, but most of the research is showing that it's helpful in the way that a benzodiazepine is helpful in the short term. So it can provide some symptom control in the short term, but long term there's symptom worsening rather than improvement. That's THC. CBD, we're still not sure. There, there may be more benefit with CBD-only products, but the research, we still need a lot more research with um, standardized sources of CBD, and that's the hard part. Because if you buy CBD from a dispensary or from a you know, gas station or whatever, it may or may not have the amount of CBD that it says it does because the government doesn't regulate how much is actually in there. So that's why it's so hard to get conclusive and, and strong research information from use of it because we, we just don't always know what's actually in it. Man, you guys have good questions <laughs> tonight. So um, did we, do we have one more question? No, we have <laughs> several more. Um, I, think, I think, Jacob, should we do one more question? I think we're going to do one more question. And then literally we'll end the live stream and we can either do questions as a group or you can come up and talk with Amy before she has to leave. All right, Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa. Um, I am prescribed, I think you said uh, clonazepam. Clonazepam. For sleeping. Okay. I didn't think that sounded like what you were talking about, but maybe I misunderstood. No, you're right on track because okay. not only are those, so clonazepam is a benzodiazepine. They are used for anxiety and they're used for insomnia. They're also used to stop seizures and they can be used for anesthesia, actually. They can, if you take enough of one, I maybe shouldn't even say this, but it can put you to sleep <laughs> permanently, actually, if you take a lot of one. But um, 
Because of stepping on the brakes in your brain using GABA, that slows down your wakefulness promoting centers too. So yes, they can and often do induce sleep. Okay. Yeah. Jacob is telling me to keep going, so we're going to keep going. So who else had a question? The gentleman behind you, Kirk, had, had his hand okay. up a few times. <clears throat> Hello, my name is Manny. Um, say, I recently took a test for my antidepressant medication, a DNA test, and I got that back, and so I was working with my provider, but now my provider um, is getting switched, and I have some questions about where to start, because we're getting to that part where I'm going back onto an antidepressant. Would my pharmacist know that information to get that? Can I go to my pharmacist um, with the thing I got from the DNA place? I'm hesitating because it depends on your pharmacist. Um, we only started to teach information about genetics with medications in pharmacy schools maybe about 10 years ago. So if your pharmacist exited pharmacy school before that, they may or may not feel confident to address that. Um, but you could ask your pharmacist if they have any colleagues maybe that would feel more confident if they are not. Um, or I would be happy to talk with you about it too, if need be. It's a, it's definitely a niche area for pharmacists, but a growing one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Ross had his. Did you have a question, Ross? Okay. Hi, uh, I'm Ross. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this is more of a timing question. Um, I struggle with swallowing medications, and so, um, you know, I. I I'm very open with the, whoever's prescribing for me about that. Uh, talk about uh, fluids or uh, changing the dose or, or whatever. Um, uh, any, I usually have to chew medications to get them down. Um, any thoughts on that, reaction to that, um, help with that? Yeah. For most medications, especially the antidepressants that we've had on the screen, that's not a problem. Unless your medication has the letters ER or SR or XL after the medication name, all of those letters mean that the medication was specifically formulated to release the contents of the pill gradually over time. And if you chew it or crush it, then that breaks down the mechanism that's supposed to release the medication. Okay, give those letters again. ER, SR, XL. I think are the most common ones. There might okay. be others, but at, did I say SR? Yeah. Yep. Um, so if it doesn't have those letters behind it, most likely it's okay and, and that not would be in the name of the med? Yeah, it would be like um, Bupropion XL. Is gotcha. The, so Bupropion's okay. the medication name, and then it has the letters after. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, if it doesn't have those letters, then it's probably fine to crush it and sometimes even put it in a little bit of applesauce or something if that helps to... Ice cream? Does that work? Mo <laughs> most meds are okay in ice cream, but there are a few that can bind to the calcium okay. in ice cream and then they Don't won't Don't do ice cream. Well. <laughs> Don't say I just but said ice cream. Your pharmacist should be able to tell you specifically, <laughs> if you tell them your specific meds, or I can look it up for you at some point too, Russ, um, which... Hmm if any of your meds would not be okay to be crushed or not be okay to be mixed with something else to get them down. Good, good question. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name's Jeremy. Um, I have a question about a specific med. I've been on um, Wellbutrin for a while and I was um, under the impression that Wellbutrin doesn't help so much for anxiety that it can make anxiety worse. Um, I'd read something recently from Dr. Google and that's why I'm asking <laughs> what you know about it. That, that turns out not to be true, that the reason I'm wondering is 
I'm wondering if I should try a different med because I have anxiety. Maybe uh, SSRI would be better. But I've heard I've, Dr. Google said that that's not the case, that um, Wellbutrin has a side effect of anxiety the same as other medications, and that it's shown to actually help with anxiety. Interestingly, both are true. Um, bupropion or Wellbutrin does have an anxiety as a side effect, and actually a little bit more than SSRIs, um, but it's also FDA approved to treat anxiety. It's been shown to be better than a placebo repeatedly to treat anxiety. And some people get their anxiety much improved when they take Wilbutrin, and some people get their anxiety much worsened when they take it. If you haven't noticed that your anxiety has gotten quite a bit worse, then you're probably one of the ones who doesn't have it worsen your anxiety, and you're probably fine to stay on it, unless you feel like your anxiety is not optimally treated, and then it's a good conversation to have with your provider. It might not mean that you need to go off of Wellbutrin, but maybe add something to it to better address your anxiety if it's not optimally treated now. Yeah. So I think we're going to, um, we had one more. Okay, we'll finish up with this. Oh, she's getting two questions. <laughs> Okay, so hi, Misty again. So I have another question. So if you're on a bunch of the meds and you don't know, like, okay, if you don't know if it's right for you, is it, is it okay, so what I want to do really is to, like, go somewhere where I can stay off of everything for a month and then that way they can just re-put me on something slowly. Is there a way to do that without actually having to do that? No. <laughs> there, there, we do that sometimes. We have... Sometimes we hospitalize people and we do, it's what's called a med wash. So you just go off of all your medications and then we start from scratch. Um, it's, it's not an easy process and it's time consuming and it, you can go through a pretty tumultuous time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's possible. Does it, does it always require hospitalization? No, I was just going to say. Sometimes it does though. Sometimes it does. But if your symptoms are not... Where it's such that you're like at risk of harming yourself, for example, at the time, then you probably could undergo that outside the hospital with close monitoring, like maybe weekly appointments or something like that. Okay. Yeah. I just, can I make a comment? Yep. Hi, I'm Brian. This has been fantastic. Good. You guys can be on the national broadcast. <laughs> it really has good. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, we do want to draw this to a close because um, our goal is 40 to 45 minutes. And, um, you know, Amy, um, you know, I'm so grateful um, to have gotten to know you over the years. I'm grateful that you are teaching um, or at least um, in charge of the teachers of pharmacy students uh, that I see when I go to the pharmacy. And um, your, your experience, your um, your knowledge um, and your ability to put it in terms that we can understand is just outstanding. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so to God be the glory. Mm -hmm. I said to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Um, I'm going to say a prayer. Thank you again, and we will probably see you back soon. All right. Um, let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for this day, and um, Lord, thank you that you are working in um, people like Amy's life to to teach them and to lead them to um, help us in regards to the medications that we might take for our mental health and other medications. And Lord, um, we thank you that not only is Amy able to impact 
um, the, the pharmacists of our community and wherever they go, uh, but that you have put in her a heart for you and, and a love for Jesus that um, kind of shines through in her life, Lord. And so bless her, bless her family, bless her work. And Lord, uh, to you be the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you.